break, uh, we reviewed what we studied last week. I added one more to the responsibilities. If you recall, we indicated that the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1, that we have been considering for some time, is that you should use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. We indicated there are three responsibilities that will go with that. The first one is that you should understand that not everything that you have the right to do has others bet that you, you really are required to seek the good of others. Now so we expanded on that by indicating that that means that you should know when to use your freedom and when not to use it. And so we indicated that last week we actually dealt with a third reason not to use your freedom when there is a challenge in the Christian faith. So we spent some time and elaborated on that. So that brought us to the third responsibility, which is where we began in the first section. That third responsibility is this, that you should follow the Apostle Paul's example of use of freedom, that he patterned himself after that of Christ. So you should use that, or you follow his example, which we will get to, but not in our study today, but we will certainly get to it. So, but the thing is, as a Christian, that you should recognize that you should be, be concerned about the spiritual welfare of other believers. So, with that, we continue to indicate that the apostle, when he used the instruction, do not cause anyone uh, to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of Christ, that he intends for us to make it a habit to ensure that we don't give offense to other people. And we explain that not giving offense does not mean lying or ignoring truth because, because we're having some uh, issues. Now, I mean, giving offense does not really mean that you should ignore doing what you're supposed to do or telling the truth because you're concerned that people are going to be offended. But that's what we're dealing with is that you should tell the truth. People may not like it. Tell the truth. And don't look at something that is wrong and uh, walk away from it instead of saying something if you have to. So based on all that, we indicated and you gave the illustration using uh, mowing the yard on Sunday and so forth to tell us that yes, there are certain things you have right to do. But when you think about how it's going to impact, impact other people or cause them to sin or to criticize you uh, in a certain way, then don't do it. That's one of the ways that you try to uh, ensure that you obey the command not to cause others to stumble. So we went through all that and then eventually we left by making the point that this fact, that as far as the application of not offending or making people to sin, that it's not limited to fellow believers, but to all humanity. 
And so we began to look at the fact that it refers to all humanity because the apostle says, talks about Jews, Greeks, and the church of Christ. And so we indicated that that means that in the ancient world, in the time of writing, the humanity as a whole is classified into three. Jews, Gentiles, actually Greeks, and the church of God. So we indicated really that when you look at it, uh, for us today, humanity will be classified into two. Believers and unbelievers. That's it. So for the Apostle Paul, because of that, he uh, classified first the Jews as part of the first kind of humanity in the ancient world. So we spent some time looking at who is a Jew. And towards the end, I did indicate that uh, the Jews are all over the world in every nation. That even some of the Hebrew people don't even know that they are Hebrew people. Because it's been so long since they have been scattered for centuries and thousands of years. So they, they have assimilated with the local population where they were carried. That they don't even know that they are Hebrew people. And so I gave you an example of those who have been discovered recently. Uh, and so with that I say that should not surprise you because of what Isaiah prophesied. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. And that's where we stopped and that's where we pick up. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 reads, In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, Think about the lower Egypt. That's really worth saying. Go down uh, a whole lot down from that part of the wall towards Ipote down and down and so on and so forth. But anyway, so he says from lower Egypt, from upper Egypt, from Kush, Kush being uh, technically that's Ethiopia, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamat, and from the islands of the sea. The islands of the sea. Now, by the way, though. A proper identification of Jews or Hebrew people is important. Because of the promise of the Lord to Abraham in Genesis chapter 2 verse 3. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 reads... I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I see many Christians in this country, for example, support present Israel because of this promise. But present Israel consists primarily of a tiny fraction of the Hebrew people. Thus, really for consistency, those who support present Israel ought to know where or who are the rest of Hebrew descendants in order to avoid 
uh, bringing costs on themselves. So anyway, we are instructed not to offend though, or cause a Jew to stumble. That's what we're starting in First Corinthians ten thirty-two because it say begins with uh, the Jews. Don't give offense. It begins with the Jews. So we've explained what, uh, who are the Jews. So what did the apostle really mean, and how is that applicable today? Now in the context of First Corinthians chapters eight to ten, the apostle would have meant that the Corinthians should not offer meat sacrifice to idols to Jews who abhor such meat. In addition, the apostle would have have included not offering any food to the Jews that they consider unclean not because they are right since all foods are clean to eat since the coming of Jesus Christ into the world uh, when he did come. But they should not do so because of the conscience of such a Jew. Now in current, this not offending a Jew will have included believers not going to a restaurant in the pagan temple as that will be a cause Oh, that will cause a Jew not to believe that there is a difference between Christians and pagans. In other words, what we are explaining is, when we think about it, we have explained that the best restaurants in those days, in Corinth, will be those attached to the pagan uh, temples. And so, a believer in Christ knows that there are Jews, so he, he or she should not go to the restaurant. Because of those, the conscience. Because if they see a Christian, they say, oh yeah, we're right. They're still in idolatry. That's, that's why they're going in, into those temples. So that's part of what Paul would have meant in terms of not offending a Jew. So as not to give them the impression there's no difference as, I mean, between Jews and, and uh, Christians. Anyway, as to how this instruction is really applicable today, uh, let me state that what we said about what the command could not mean applies to the Jews. In other words, it does not mean that we should not preach the gospel to the Jews or say something or anything that may offend them, but, but it's truth. See, many Jewish rabbis in our days, are upset when we make statements that are in keeping with the New Testament that they find offensive. For example, when we say that the law is not given for salvation, they object to such truth. So, not to give offense to them does not mean we should not teach the truth that observance of the law will not lead anyone to salvation. That's what we say. The giving, you know, not giving offense doesn't mean compromise truth. Now that, that said though, we should uh, be careful not to downplay such things as their adherence to kosher food 
or their celebration of Passover or their insistence of circumcision of their sons. We should not play down on those. So, not giving offense to a Jew uh, today implies them primarily not to criticize them for these rituals. So, we should be careful what we say, of course, about them. So, anyway, the point is that we should be careful not to not offending a Jew in such things that are not domain to the gospel message. Now, if it has nothing to do with the gospel message, you be careful not to offend them. But if it has to do with the gospel message, you give the gospel, no matter what they think. Now, the next group that the apostle mentioned in the passage we're studying, uh, that we should not cause to stumble or give offense to, consists of Gentiles. As given in the passage we're studying, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Look at the next word there, it says, Greeks, Greeks. Now, someone may say, though, that the passage says Greeks and not Gentiles. And so, that maybe I must be wrong in the use of the word Gentiles. But I'm not wrong as I will demonstrate to you. The word Greeks is translated from a Greek word Helen. Helen. That may mean or may refer to a person of Greek language and culture. As the word is used in Romans chapter 1 verse 14. Romans chapter 1 verse 14. Here it reads, Romans chapter 1 verse 14 reads, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. Now in this context of Romans chapter 1 verse 14, a Greek is considered as being civilized or cultured in contrast to the non-Greek or uh, literally a barbarian. That is one who is not civilized or uneducated. And the Greek word translated Greek though may mean in a broader sense all such persons who came under the influence of the Greek as they dis- distinguished from Israel's culture. So the word may even mean Gentile. Gentile. It is in this sense that the word is used in Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Reads, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. Now the phrase Jews and Gentiles, literally the Greek reads Jews and Greeks. Jews and Greeks. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32 though, 
the word is used in the sense of Gentiles as polytheists, those who worship many gods. Polytheists. So, uh, although it's translated Greek, it really means Gentiles. Now, we have established though that when the apostle used the word Greek, uh, the, uh, used the Greek word translated Greeks though in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, he meant Gentiles. That in today's world should be understood as a reference to all unbelievers. All unbelievers. I see, the question then is how the believer is to obey the command not to give offense to Gentiles or to unbelievers. As we have stated previously, the command not to give offense to Gentiles or unbelievers does not mean that believers should compromise the truth. That I keep emphasizing. It doesn't mean that. So, we should not think that if we compromise the truth, that we are uh, doing our best not to offend Gentiles or unbelievers. That's not, we're not. Because we're not supposed to compromise our faith. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, the believer obeys the command by not being rude to an unbeliever who has invited the person to a meal that the individual accepts to attend. Now, rudeness to the unbeliever will involve questioning the source of the meat served during the meal. In effect, a believer should not probe the source of the meat given to the individual while, in a get, while uh, as a guest in the home of an unbeliever. Now let the, the unbeliever be the one that makes an issue of the source of the meat at which time or at which point the believer will politely decline to eat the meat. So anyway, in general, a believer will not give an offense to an unbeliever if the person we are careful in the manner of disagreeing with an unbeliever in the matters related to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we will disagree, and we should, because the believer will unbeliever. I mean, we are believers, the unbelievers. So, what we're saying is, it is the way you disagree with them that's important. So, we mean that since the believer is not to compromise the truth, Refusing to do something that an unbeliever wants uh, a believer to do that is wrong or contrary to the scripture could be done without rudeness, without being rude. Now this means that the believer should be as polite as possible while not compromising the truth. Now we have made this point though in the past in the form that a believer should be careful in the manner in which such an individual uh, says something to another. Believer or unbeliever, it doesn't really matter. Just be careful how you do that. So that I'm referring to 
the application of the declaration of Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1. Proverbs Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 reads A gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger So the application of this passage to dealing with an unbeliever is that the believer should be kind and gentle to an unbeliever who comes at him angrily or who says things that are intended to mock the Christian faith. You approach them tenderly. An unbeliever may be seeking to pick a fight with a believer based on the truth of how the believer conducts self. When this is the case, to avoid giving offense to the unbeliever, the believer should calmly make his case or her case without being rude to the unbeliever. Now such an approach is what I describe as a soft approach. A soft approach. You're not compromising the truth, but you just, you be very soft when you do it. Uh, explain to somebody the truth. Now we can have more impact though, by following them, the soft approach, than we can by shouting and being abrasive to the unbeliever. Now the soft approach is in effect what is indicated in Proverbs Chapter 25, verse 15. Proverbs. Chapter 25, verse 15. It reads, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15 reads, Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. Now look at the next thing. A gentle tongue can break a bone. A gentle tongue can break a bone. Now, the sentence a gentle tongue can break a bone is not to be understood literally. See, that doesn't make sense. In literal sense. Instead though, it is a figurative way of saying that gentle words could overcome strong resistance. In other words, you can break down the stubborn person by gentle words than you can by being abrasive. So anyway, the way to avoid giving offense to an unbeliever in a general way is to use the soft approach in dealing with such a person's attack on the Christian faith or using a soft approach in refusing to go along with an unbeliever in something that the believer knows is contrary to God's word. Now since the Greek word that means to give offense also means 
to stumble. Then, the believers should be careful not to do anything that will become a hindrance to any unbeliever regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. What this means is that we should be careful not to do something that may turn off an unbeliever from hearing the gospel message. Now we should do everything in our God-given power to conduct ourselves in a way that will not prevent an unbeliever from hearing or paying attention to the gospel message that we present to such individuals or the gospel message presented to the person by another believer. Not necessarily you. Now you see, if we Christians live contrary to the truth, an unbeliever will pick it up quickly. And so when another Christian wants to witness to that unbeliever, the person says that he does not want to listen to the gospel message because or they will say, since all you Christians are hypocrites because of the maybe one or two persons the person has interacted with. And so the person does not want to listen to the truth. In that way you've caused somebody to stop. Now the point though is that not giving offense to an unbeliever includes not doing anything that serves or that hinders the person from paying attention to the gospel. Now be that as he made them, the next group the apostle mentioned, uh, Corinthians and so all of us believers, should not offend, is the church of Christ, given in the phrase of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, where we're studying, look at it, that phrase, the church of God. The church of God. Now before we examine this phrase, let us observe what the Holy Spirit is doing here. We need to observe, because if we read, you know, Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. And we just go through it. No? Let's, that's why I say, let's slow down and see what he's saying. Now, here we see there's something that the Holy Spirit is doing through the Apostle Paul. He distinguished the church from the two groups of people that formed the ancient world. And so you see then, to the Jews of the time of Apostle Paul, the world at that time was divided into Jews and non-Jews. That, of course, of course, means the Gentiles. Thus then, when the Holy Spirit directed the Apostle to mention a third group that one should be careful not to offend or cause to stumble as a church, then the Holy Spirit wants us to recognize the distinctiveness of believers. I know some people just wrote through that, okay, it's the Jews, Gentiles, and Church of God. And you just run through it. No. You question why the, the Holy Spirit just put that again, just the Church of God. Now see, I think though, is that it is for us to be careful to recognize the constitution of a new humanity. I think that 
most of us Christians have not really recognized the truth of the new humanity that is brought into existence in Christ. See, here is the thing that when we go through this, uh, there's, there's a lot of shorthands, more or less, in the Bible, in certain areas. I mean, the shorthands that once it's given, it says, covers a whole lot. So that's what I'm trying to prove to you, that when the apostle, the Holy Spirit directed him, said, Church of God, when he had mentioned the Jews, he mentioned the Greeks or the Gentiles, then why bring the Church of God? Why put it as a specific group, category? Why? And that's what I'm trying to get to us to see. Is that he wants us to see there is a new humanity. The new humanity in Christ Jesus. Now I think that most of us Christians have not really recognized the truth of the new humanity that is brought in existence in Christ as Apostle Paul Reference and we have studied in detail in the past in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. We studied this in detail, but uh, we'll go through just briefly here. Yeah. It reads, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose as Christ was to create in himself one new man. That word new man should really mean new humanity. Out of the two doors making peace. Now the phrase, the two here, refers to Jews and Gentiles. The new man here refers to the believer in Christ. Regardless of gender, who was previously a Jew or Gentile. So when a person believes in Christ, that person is no longer what the person was prior to salvation. Now in the context of the New Testament, that means that a Jew is no longer a Jew. And a Gentile is no longer a Gentile. Because the person is now in the church of Christ that formed the new humanity. Now I honestly believe that nearly all Christians in this country and many other countries where people of different tribes or ethnicity have not grasped this concept. Or if they have, they are not living that way. Now the reason I say this is because many believers are still identifying themselves with their ethnicity instead of identifying with the church of Christ. So if you do not recognize that you are no longer whatever your ethnicity was now that you are in Christ, then you have proven my point. The Holy Spirit wants us to get this point that he directed the apostles to spell it out in a diff- another epistle. And this is in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. Galatians 
Galatians 3, 28-29, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's really Gentile. There's neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free. Male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promise. See, here's the thing I'm point I'm making here. If you, I mean, whatever your ethnicity is, when you get saved, it doesn't change your ethnicity. You still, whatever it is. But this is, the Bible tells you, but you are in a new humanity, which means you don't function with your ethnicity, whatever that happens to be. You don't function under that as a Christian. Now, if, to make the issue so you know, when it says male or female, you haven't changed. You're a woman, you're still a woman, you're a man, you're still a man in Christ. But in your thinking, you shouldn't think as a man or a woman. You should think as a believer in Christ. That's your status is in Christ. Now so, if you believe that you are actually obeying this instruction, then prove it by the way you live and how you conduct yourself as a believer, not as a member of any ethnicity. So the point is that the phrase of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32, the church of God is an important one necessary to say to a Jew that he is no longer a Jew once he believes in Christ. Likewise, a Gentile is no longer a Gentile because he is now in Christ. There is a new humanity in Christ and they go by the name Christians. That's who they are. Christians. I know the, the word is thrown around today. But that's who they are. This new humanity. They are called Christians. That's all you should identify yourself with. Christian. Now, because we, this is something that you have to accept by faith and leave it out. That's why it's a challenging thing. Because it is easier for you to see what your ethnicity is. That's more important to you because you can see with your eyes. But you can't see this new humanity unless it's taught to you and you get it and sink and let it sink into your soul. That yes, I am now in the new humanity. We are called Christians. So, you are different then from what others think. Now, I know, of course, remember when I said, uh, we read something, I said, it's a hard doctrine. Now, this is one of those things. This is a hard doctrine. That you must strive to make a reality in your life as a believer in Christ. It's a hard doctrine. But you've got to make it real. God doesn't tell us things just to mock us. He wants us to live that way. So you make it real by the way you change your thinking. You accept what God has told you and walk that way. So you are different from the rest of humanity. Because you are now a member of the church of Christ, as implied in the phrase, the church of God. Now the word church is translated from a Greek word, 
That again we have considered in detail in a past study. But I will review what I said previously. Not only for the benefit of those who were not there when we examined the word in detail. But also as a refresher to those who were in that study. Now the word church, the Greek word really used is a Greek word ecclesia, ecclesia. So the word may refer to a group of citizens assembled for social political activities and so means assembly, gathering as in the riotous group that rose against Apostle Paul at Athens as recorded in Acts chapter 19 verse 32. Acts chapter 19 verse 32. Acts chapter 19 verse 32 reads The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. I mean, that's a human story. Here, though, the Greek word ecclesia is translated assembly. Assembly. Now the Greek word may be used to describe people with shared belief, hence can mean a community or a congregation. It is in the sense, in this sense that the word is used to describe Israel in the desert in Acts chapter seven, verse thirty eight. Acts chapter 7, verse 38. Acts chapter 7, verse 38 reads, He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received Living words to pass on to us. I see most of our English versions use the meaning congregation instead of the word assembly in this part, uh, in, here in Acts. They, you know, just to describe or translate the uh, Greek word that we have. Interestingly, though, the authorized version, that is the old King James version, uses the word church. In the days of church. But the new King James Version, of course, now being a little more modern, used the word congregation. Now the Greek word, in the, uh, in the sense of referring to people, with shared beliefs, is used primarily in the scripture in about six different ways. First, it is used in the Septuagint, relating to the word Lord, to describe the assembly of people of God, that is Israel, as it is used in the Greek translation of this uh, of Septuagint of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 2. 
Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 2. It reads, Deuteronomy 23 verse 2 reads, No one born of a forbidden marriage, nor any of his descendants, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. Now the phrase assembly of the Lord refers to the Lord's people, or the people of God. Now that aside, though, the word assembly is really translated from a Hebrew word, that is a general word for assembly, but it is this word that is translated in the Septuagint using our Greek word ecclesia, or the word that means church, or translate church. Now, even without the use of the word Lord, though, the Greek word used in a Septuagint refers to the congregation of believers of the Old Testament times, as it is used. By the psalmist in Psalm, in the Septuagint of Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalms 22, verse 22. It is, it is, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. So, we now know that the word can refer to, especially when used with the Lord, to refer to the assembly of Israel or the people of God. Second, though, the word is used to describe God's people, whether in heaven or on earth. That is, those who have believed. Or who will believe in Christ, whose names are recorded in heaven. Now, Jesus used the word to describe a community of believers that will exist after his death, as we read in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Matthew chapter 18 verse 17 uh, focus on the fact that this is a statement recorded from our Lord Jesus before he went to uh, the cross to die for our sins. So here it says if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church that is dealing with a believer who has offended you, you go to him or her and say, you, my brother, this is or sister, this is what you did for me, to me, against me. And if they didn't uh, listen to you, say, take another two people and go with, with you. And if the person still didn't ignore you, they say, turn, refer that person to the church. Now remember, Christ hasn't been to the cross yet. So that's why he says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's give that person a cold shoulder. Now the reason we state that Jesus viewed 
the church as a community of future believers is that the preceding two verses speak of one brother or two more brothers who are believers. So go back to the same Matthew 18. Go back to go to verses 15 and 16. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 reads, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if you will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, since the instruction of the Lord is to take the matters to the church, if no resolution is achieved with two or three brothers, then it must mean, or it must be that the church is viewed as a larger community of believers. That is future from the time Jesus declared the words of Matthew 18, verse 17. Now that aside, the word church though is used to refer to God's people with focus on Christians on this planet. As that is the way the word is used, or the sense is used in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23. It is to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now the phrase church of the firstborn here of Hebrews 12 verse 23 is a reference to all God's people but with focus on believers in Christ since the cross. Of course, there are those who interpret it as a reference to all believers, living or dead, or a reference to Old Testament believers only. Now this notwithstanding, it is because there is a clear reference to believers in heaven in this passage that we are convinced that that phrase, church of the firstborn, that phrase, church of the firstborn, refers to all believers who are still on this planet. That is, believers in the universal church of God that are still on this planet. Now the class, uh, the class of believers that the author mentioned in that Hebrew 12, 23, look at that phrase, to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect. That phrase is clearly a reference to believers already in heaven. That will, will, that will certainly include the Old Testament believers. Because that's when he said spirits made perfect. They have now arrived. They are completed. So he can refer to all of us who are still struggling on this planet. So this is the way 
the word can be used in the New Testament and Old Testament. Third, the Greek word translated church is used to uh, designate the totality of believers in Christ living and meeting in a specific lo- uh, locality or larger geographical area, but not necessarily limited to one meeting place. Thus, it is used to describe believers of the early church in Jerusalem, as we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Acts Acts chapter 8 verse 1 Now hold on to Acts He reads And Saul was there giving approval to his death the death of Stephen On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now the church here no doubt refers to believers in Christ since we have informed that except for the apostles the rest of the church was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now only a people, not a building as some use the word church, can be scattered to different locations. So there is then the indication that believers met at different houses, or what they used to call church houses, in that Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. Verse 3 reads, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. Destroying the churches, trying to kill off believers. Fourth, the Greek word translated church is used to designate the gathering of believers for discussion of matters of concern to the community of believers or for worship. Hence, believers who gathered in Jerusalem to deal with the concern of apostles Paul and Barnabas about the relationship of Gentiles to the law that gave the the guided directives to Gentiles, believers were described as a church in Acts 15 verse 22. Acts 15 verse 22. Acts 15 verse 22 reads, Then the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Bathsabbas, and Silas. Two men who were leaders among the brothers. You see, the, you see the whole church. That is a group of believers gathered together to decide a matter of importance. Now it is in this sense, uh, same sense that Apostle Paul described the gathering 
of believers in Corinth for worship that involves the celebration of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 8. I mean verse 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 18. Let me put your marker there. I'll go to two passages. I'll come right back to that passage. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 18 reads, In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, that's for worship, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. So, here, we see that a Greek word is used to designate gathering of believers, for worship. Fifth, our Greek word translated church is used to designate the global community of believers or the body of, of Christ or those, those who are believed in Christ regardless of where they are, wherever they are located on this planet. Now, this is often referred to as the universal church. The universal church. It is in this sense that the word is used by Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 22. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 reads, And God placed all things under His feet, that's Jesus Christ, and appointed him to be the head of everything for the church. That church is church universal. So Christ is the head of the church, not only in the sense of a local assembly of believers, but in the sense of the assembly of believers everywhere and at all times. So it is church in a general sense. Sixth, our Greek word translated church, is used to designate believers as an assembly that belongs to God or to Christ or to both. An assembly that belongs to God or to Christ. It is used to describe the assembly of believers that belong to Christ in Romans chapter 16 verse 16. Romans Chapter 16, verse 16. It reads, Romans 16, verse 16 reads, Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. See, here we're looking at various local churches or local assembly of believers. So when it's used, it could be the word church could refer to local congregations, or it could refer to the church at large, the universal church. But here it is used in the local sense of local churches. So it is used to describe the assembly of believers who belong to God, because here it is described as the churches of Christ. Now, another place is described as the church of God. And that's the way we see it 
Also in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16. First Corinthians chapter 11 verse 16. It reads, If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And the churches of God are the churches of Christ. Scattered all over the place. Anyway, we have examined in the various ways the Greek word ecclesia, translated church, is used in the New Testament. So the question is in what sense did the apostle use it in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32? It is for the universal church, that is the global community of believers or the body of those who have believed in Christ, regardless of where they are located. So the, the issue is not that you don't do something that will only affect or offend believers in your local area, but wherever other believers are. That you, what you did may have impact. Now so, it is for this reason that we say that the Lord's concern for us, through the Holy Spirit, is that we are very careful not to give offense to other believers. However, again, since the instruction we are considering about not giving offense or causing someone to stumble, is really concerned with the individuals. Then, the phrase, the church of God, is concerned primarily with an individual believer in a local church of God, regardless of where they are located on this planet. But you see, those that you see more immediately are those in your local congregation. But there are other believers in different local congregations. You must also be careful not to give offense to them. So in any event, the question really is, how a believer should then obey the instruction not to give offense or to cause a fellow believer to stumble. How are we to do that? Because it's one thing we explain what it is, but then the next thing is, how do we go about doing, doing that? How do we do that? Well, as you guess, time is up. I will answer that in the next study. But let me remind you of the third responsibility, which is that you should follow Apostle Paul's example of use of freedom that he patterned after that of Jesus Christ. And we'll continue with this next week's study. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or listening over the internet, internet. We want you to know of Christ's love for you. If you're one that you don't know your state. In other words, you don't know where you're going to go if you were to die now. You don't know where you're going to hell or heaven. To such a person, we're telling you, God loves you. His love is not a question of saying, I love you. He showed it by action of sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Although God, he left the glories of heaven, came down 
to this planet and endured suffering of the ones the type unimaginable to you and me. He did all that to demonstrate his love for you. See, he created a place of, for those who do not believe in him called hell. But he came so you don't go there. So if you are hearing this, it must be because you and God's plan to hear it. And so God wants you to know of this great love that he has demonstrated what Christ did. He lowered himself so he can elevate you. He lowered himself so that you can become a member of the family of God in him. So, how you do that? Well, there's, only, there's a barrier between you and God and it's called sin. Sin keeps you from interacting with God. But Christ came and put a bridge between you and God by going onto the cross and taking your sins and dying for them. He died for the sins of the whole world. But he must personalize it. He died for your own sins. Whatever they happen to be, no matter how horrible you have lived, no matter what you have done, Christ already paid for them. So what's left is the attitude towards him. If you believe that he came to this planet, lived, died, taught, and then was crucified, buried, the third day, he rose from the dead. If you believe that, then what God does is your sins are completely forgiven. So that you, no matter what it is, you now start with a clean slate. And so you have to do is simply to believe that fact. And that's why the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Again, what are you to believe? The Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His name. If you believe in Him, you receive eternal life. On the other hand, you say, well, I don't really care. I'm not thinking about it now. Well, here's the problem, my friend. The next second is not guaranteed to you. There's no reason, no guarantee that you will live the next one minute. So this is why the Bible says, this is the day of salvation. When you hear it, listen, check yourself and ask that question, where am I? Have I believed in him? Do I have life? Believe in him and you will escape the common wrath of God. I have only Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will continue to challenge us so that we will know as believers that we are part of the new humanity and that we are given the responsibility not to offend the people in a way that would drive them away from our faith. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen.